listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Let's read our text this evening. We're in Matthew 5, getting close to the end of Matthew 5. And we're going to look at verses 38 through 42. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Now, last week, we looked at the transfiguration of Christ. On transfiguration weekend, we took a detour from the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at the story of Jesus' transfiguration, where Jesus takes with him his three closest disciples, James, John, and Peter, and they go up a high mountain to pray. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus is transfigured. His appearance is transformed. His face begins to shine like the brightness of the sun. His clothes begin to radiate. And then alongside of him, we see these two great prophets from centuries earlier, Moses and Elijah, no doubt representing for us the law and the prophets, or what you and I would just simply call the Old Testament. And Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, are there on the mountain with Jesus. And Peter, who doesn't know what to do, doesn't know what to say, says, I got a great idea. Let's build three tents, three tabernacles. Jesus, I'm going to put you right alongside of Moses and Elijah. Moses, Jesus, Elijah, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, on equal footing. And, and the voice from the heavens speaks and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And, Mo- and, and Peter, James, and John pass out. And then a few moments later when they come to, they look up and Moses and Elijah are gone. Only Jesus remains. And I think one of the things we take from the transfiguration is this very foundational insight that Jesus is not just one revelation of God among many, side by side. Jesus is the perfect, pure revelation of God that sums up and completes all others that everyone else points us to. So we don't take Jesus and put him alongside of Moses and Elijah. No, we understand that what Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets want to do is point us forward to Jesus, the perfect, inerrant word of God in human flesh. Jesus is what God has to say. And so in this passage here in the Sermon on the Mount, we see a natural outworking of that where Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where have they heard that said? Somebody tell me. This is an interactive sermon. Um, Where where do they hear that said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Where, Where do they hear that? In the law, in the Old Testament, in Moses. So Jesus is saying, Moses has told you this. The law tells you this. I'm telling you something else. I'm going to take you in a different direction. Now, you understand the radical nature of this? Who talks like that? This is why the rabbi, Jacob Neusner, 
is uncomfortable with and ultimately rejects the Sermon on the Mount. In his book, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus, he says, only God has the right to demand from me what Jesus is asking. To which I say, amen. Exactly. See, we've got to make a decision. Is Jesus just merely an interpreter of the scriptures? Or is he the word of God in human form? That's what makes a Christian a Christian. So he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. Now the story of human civilization, as it's told in the Bible, really begins with two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain was a tiller of the ground. He was a cultivator of the soil. He, he learned how to harness agriculture. Abel, his younger brother, on the other hand, was a keeper of the flocks, a follower of herds. He was what you and I today would call a hunter-gatherer. And as the story is told, Cain rises up in the field and slays his brother Abel because there was strife between them. In fact, it's very interesting. Anthropologists tell us that at the very dawn of human civilization, there was enormous conflict between those people who were sort of like nomadic hunter-gatherers and people who had learned how to harness agriculture so they could set up shop and say, we're going to build a city right here. And I, th I think at least some of that is echoed here in this story of Cain and Abel. So Cain murders his brother, and from there he goes forth to found the very first human city. So I just want you to see that woven right into the fabric of human civilization is this practice of vengeance and violence. Cain has a son. His son has a son. A few generations down, we learn of a young man named Lamech. Lamech is one of Cain's descendants. And we read just a little further in the same chapter of Genesis, we read about this guy Lamech. Lamech is not a famous man in the Bible, but he was a very violent man in a violent age. And just to prove how bad of a dude he was, Lamech writes a little poem for us. And here's what Lamech says about himself in Genesis 4, verse 23. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Wow. Don't mess with Lamech. He says straight up, a guy wounded me, I killed him. That's how I roll. I don't get mad, I don't get even, I just crush anybody who crosses me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, Lamech's vengeance is 70 times seven. By the way, this is the very first 70 times seven in the Bible. And of course, much later, Jesus is gonna say, no, it's not vengeance 70 times seven, it's forgive 70 times seven. But we'll get there in a moment. But Lamech, lived in what's called the antediluvian world. He lived in the world before the great flood that was this judgment that God brought upon the earth, as the Bible says. But what was the human sin that so grieved God's heart that brought this judgment upon the earth? What was that particular sin that so grieved God's heart? It's, there's only one particular sin that's named, and it's named three times. 
It's the sin of escalating violence and vengeance. And this is, in fact, the problem that Moses and the law are trying to address when he writes, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What the law is trying to do is bring it back down to a commensurate reciprocal level rather than Lamech's crazy 70 times 7 formula, which only thrusts the world into this cycle of escalating vengeance that ultimately leads to the destruction of the earth and the flood. I mean, you can imagine what it's like to live in a world where every time somebody wrongs you, you now up the ante. So if you insult me, I'm going to slap you. If you punch me, I'm going to kill you. If you kill my family, we're going to kill your entire town. Ultimately, the whole world now is going to be thrust into a state of chaos and death and destruction. So Moses and the law come around and say, no, 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 no. Let's harness that. Let's, let's put a lid on that. Let's bring it back down to a commensurate level. So here's what it says in Exodus 20, 21, which is what Jesus is quoting here in the sermon. Here's what Moses writes. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. I think you get the picture here. So if you somehow cut off my foot, I'm allowed to cut off your foot, but I can't kill you. So it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When I, when I say those last two phrases, I can't help but think of what Peter's going to write 12, 1300 years later when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't want to play the game of payback? If you wound me and put stripes on me, I'm going to wound you and put stripes on you. No, 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 no. It's by his wounds and stripes we are healed. Because Jesus absorbs the blow into his own flesh. And what comes back is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in this sermon and in this passage, Jesus is trying to teach us to live this Calvary pattern of life, the Jesus way. So that if someone strikes you on the right cheek, you turn the other. If somebody forces you to go to one mile, you go the second mile. Now I'll talk in a moment about kind of what that means, but first let me just tell you this as a foundation. When Jesus preaches this message, He's not doing this as some university professor in an ivory tower somewhere, smoking a pipe, talking dreamy theories. And he's not preaching this sermon as the pastor of some comfortable suburban megachurch spinning out ideas that will work in a utopian society. Jesus is preaching this sermon amongst a people who presently were being oppressed and viciously exploited by a hated military superpower called the Roman Empire. And what the Romans did better than anybody else was conquer nations. And what they did, the second thing they did better than anybody else was build roads. They built roads all over the empire. In fact, it was the Romans who invented the whole concept of a mile marker. 
having mile markers everywhere. And so they had this law because, you know, this great big military apparatus, they got to be able to move around the world. And the officers in the Roman military, they would ride on the backs of horses and, and they would have slaves that would carry their bags. But the vast majority of the Roman military was made up of foot soldiers. And they would carry with them these 60-pound sacks. A few moments ago, I was in my office, and I had my bag, and I had some weights, and I was going to fill it with 60 pounds and just carry it with me to show you. And I was like, man, this bag's going to fall apart if I do that. can't hold 60 pounds. So I said, maybe I better not do that. But they would have to carry these bags. And so what they would do is they would, cons- they would conscript people, and they'd say, hey, you, come carry this bag for me. You're going to carry this for me. And, and, and you had no choice in the matter because this is the Roman military we're talking about. But the Romans had a law that said, you can only force someone to carry a bag, that bag for you, for one mile. So when Jesus is giving this instruction that if somebody forces you to go one mile, go, go the second mile, in this case, this is not metaphor. He is giving this instruction to a people who were very used to this kind of treatment. And they have probably had this experience multiple times in their lives where they're just going about their day and they encounter some Roman soldier who says, hey, you, Jew, come take this bag and carry it for me. Imagine how demeaning that felt, how humiliating it felt, how much anger this might inspire within you. I mean, you, you've got your whole day in front of you. You've got stuff you want to do. You've got to go to the market. And all of a sudden, somebody's telling you, ordering you to carry this 60-pound sack and carry it for them an entire mile. But what I want you to see is that what Jesus is actually doing when he's giving this teaching, he is setting forth a very creative form of resistance against the empire and a way of shaming the powers and principalities. It works like this. So you encounter a Roman soldier who says, hey, you, take this bag and, and carry it for me. So you, you take this 60-pound sack, which is heavier than you think, and you sling it on your back, and you go with them for an entire mile. But once you reach the mile marker, that Roman soldier is totally expecting that you're going to do what everybody would do at that moment, and that would be you just toss the sack onto the ground, maybe make a parting comment, and leave. And instead, you look at him and say, you know what, I'm going to carry this a second mile. And you see how this could, like, potentially mess with that Roman soldier's head? Are you serious? Yeah, totally serious. And see, what you're doing is you're making a, it's, it's a form of resistance. You're saying, I am a free person. And you may have forced me to carry this one mile, but nobody can force me to carry it two miles. And so out of my own will, I am choosing to carry this a second mile to prove that I am a free person and I'm not going to be scripted according to the ideals of hatred and vengeance and escalating payback. And I just wonder when Jesus gave this instruction and as his followers began to literally put this into practice, I wonder how often it may have occurred that one of these Roman soldiers every now and again might have felt a little ashamed of himself and said, no, no, this isn't right. I shouldn't even have made you carry this one mile. I'm sorry. And see, it's important that you notice that 
what Jesus is not doing, he's not, he's not telling us, thou shalt be a doormat. That's not the thrust of this teaching. What he's teaching is, thou shalt not be scripted according to the spirit of the age, which involves all this hatred and vengeance and, and mutual payback. No, instead, you're going you're gonna to resist. You're going to fight back with self-sacrificial others-oriented Calvary-like love and trust that this Calvary way of life is what's actually going to turn the world upside down. And this was a revolutionary idea. To help you see how revolutionary it was, let me give you a little bit of history. How many of you like history? Where are my history buffs? Bunch of you, great. And the rest of you, just bear with me. But history doesn't have to be boring, so I'm not going to make it boring. I'm going to, I'm going to make it interesting. I'm going to tell it as a story. About 200 years before Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, there was a very, very wicked king, almost kind of an Adolf Hitler type. And he was king over the Greek Seleucids. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus ruled over the piece of land that we think of as Israel. He ruled over the territory in which the Jewish people lived. He was a vicious, vicious man. And what Antiochus wanted to do is he wanted to force the Jewish people to become Greeks in every way. He wanted to force upon them Greek political ideas and political structure. He wanted to force upon them Greek culture. He built theaters and, and athletic uh, arenas and, and try to force upon them Greek art and all of that type of thing, Greek philosophy. But most egregiously, he wanted to force the Jewish people to adopt Greek religious worship. He actually forbade them to make sacrifices to their God, Yahweh, and he tried to coerce the Jews to make sacrifices of worship to the Greek pantheon of gods, Zeus and Hermes and all of the rest. Well, you can imagine, I mean, this created all kinds of strife and, and tension within Israel, and it, it, was, it just was boiling over like a powder keg, and eventually it exploded, and it happened in a city called Modein, and it's still around to this day. But there in the city of Modein, there was a Jewish priest named Mattathias, and one of these Greek soldiers there tried to force Mattathias to sacrifice on the altar a pig of all things in worship to the Greek god Zeus. And Mattathias responded and said, I'm not going to do that. You can kill me if you want to. There's no way I'm going to do that. And then one of his fellow Jews stepped forward and says, I'll do it instead. And when his fellow countrymen, when his fellow Jew stepped up and compromised and wanted to make that sacrifice, Mattathias slaughtered him, killed him. And that moment sparked this huge nationwide revolution. And it was a revolution that was led by Mattathias's three sons. And the very next year, Mattathias himself was arrested and he was sentenced to be executed. And just before he was executed, he gave his final words, which would eventually become famous in the patriotic folklore of Israel. 
It's kind of like for you and I as Americans, the way we look back at Patrick Henry's words, give me liberty or give me death. I mean, 250 years later, we still know those words. They are famous and they have formed us in many ways as Americans. And Mattathias' last words became a rallying cry for Israel, for generations and generations. And here's what Mattathias' final words were. Avenge the wrong done, dear people. Pay back the Gentiles in full. And his three sons took that to heart. His third son would eventually become the leader of this huge freedom fighter movement that would become successful. And his name was Judah. And they had a nickname for him. They called him Judah Maccabee. And that word Maccabee meant, meant the hammer. Because it was Judah who hammered those Greeks and put them in their place and successfully led this Jewish revolution. And for the first time in hundreds of years, he reestablished Israel as a sovereign national identity. And for the next 200 years and beyond, and even to this day, Judah Maccabee has become this celebrated national hero. And, and in, 200 years later, in Jesus' day, if you were to ask the average Jew, when God raises up Messiah, this savior figure that the prophets told us about, who's going to restore Israel and rule the world for all of eternity, when God raises this man up, what's he going to be like? If you were to ask the average common Jew what Messiah is going to be like, they would say he's going to be like Judah the hammer. He's going to be another one of them. Just like Judah the hammer hammered the Greeks, well, when God raises up Messiah, Messiah is going to hammer the Romans. So when Jesus steps onto the national stage of Israel and becomes the most famous man in all of Israel because of these miracles he's doing and he's opening blind eyes and he's calming storms and he's multiplying food, he's doing crazy things that nobody's ever done. All of a sudden, rumors begin to swirl that Messiah has finally arrived and now you might be able to understand why this was so dangerous for them to begin talking like this about Jesus because they had already these preformed expectations of what Jesus is gonna do. This is the man who's gonna hammer the Romans. He's gonna mobilize this revolution. He's gonna lead this military revolt and put the Romans in their place and sit on the throne of Israel once and for all. They wanted Jesus to be like Judah the hammer and issue paybacks. Jesus didn't come to issue paybacks. He didn't come to pick up the sword and hammer down Israel's national enemies. And Jesus' revolutionary message to Israel was not the stirring war speech of Mattathias. It was the counterintuitive message of the Sermon on the Mount and loving our enemies and turning the other cheek and forgiving 70 times 7. Jesus wasn't calling warriors to form a revolutionary army. He was calling the poor and the weak and the merciful and the meek to form the kingdom of God. And his disciples just didn't get it. I mean, the whole time they're following Jesus around, they're thinking, man, this guy can walk on water. He can calm storms. He can multiply food. He can raise the dead. 
Imagine what he can do to the Romans when he finally mobilizes us and we all take up swords against them. Imagine, the Romans aren't going to stand a chance. And, and, and this was their paradigm. The whole t- their whole lives they've been thinking, Judah the hammer, Judah the hammer, Judah the hammer. And Jesus didn't come to be the hammer of God. He's the lamb of God. He didn't come to slaughter his enemies. He came to be slaughtered for his enemies, out of love for his enemies, to save his enemies. And they just don't get that. James and John, the sons of thunder, are traveling through this Samaritan village. And the Samaritan village refuses to allow Jesus' entry. So they they say, hey, let's call down fire from heaven and burn them all up. And Jesus says, no. You don't even know its spirit you're of. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is about to be arrested, and Peter pulls out his sword, thinking, okay, Jesus, is this now, finally, when you're going to lead this revolt? And he doesn't wait for an answer, and he lops off a guy's ear, evidently aiming for his head. And Jesus says, put your sword up. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. That's not how this thing's going to come. And within just a few hours, he's going to sprout his arms on the cross, and they're going to nail him to a cross, and he's going to take his last breath and die. And every one of those disciples has the wind just completely knocked out of them. They're so disillusioned. They're so confused. And they're profoundly disappointed in this weak version of Messiah. And this is exactly what they thought this was until God vindicated him by raising him from the dead saying, this is my son, and this is the way I've called you to live, not the way you've been going. And see, when we lock this in and when we see this, it helps us make sense of some other kind of obscure passages in the Bible. For example, you remember the triumphal entry when Jesus, just a few days before he's crucified, he makes this entry into Jerusalem, and there's this huge parade. You remember? Look at the first part of the story in Luke 19, verse 41. Watch what it says here. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, what was everyone else doing? Cheering, singing, celebrating, rejoicing. And they're waving what? Palm branches. How did that get started? It got started with the military victories of Judah Maccabee. The palm branch had become a nationalistic symbol. It was like waving a flag. And so they're all waving their flags and they're rejoicing and they're cheering and they're chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And underneath all of that is this assumption that finally this is Judah the Hammer 2.0. And just like Judah hammered those Greeks 160 years ago, Jesus is the hammer who's going to put the Romans in their place. Come on, Jesus, hammer them. And the whole time this is going on, Jesus is weeping. Now let's look at the rest of the passage in Luke 19. Let's read this together. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The Messiah has come. 
the Prince of Peace. And they didn't want a Prince of Peace. They wanted you to the hammer. They wanted a holy warrior, not a Prince of Peace. And that's what they got. Therefore, they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize the time of their visitation. And Jesus says, I can see how this is going to end. I know where this thing's headed. And he says, there's coming a day they're going to slaughter you because you're not willing to repent. You're not willing to change the way you're thinking. You're not willing to change the way that you're approaching this. In another passage in Luke, I'm going to close in just a moment, but they come and they say, Jesus, did you hear what happened up in Galilee? Did you hear what Pontius Pilate did? There were some revolutionaries that came from Galilee, because they always came from Galilee. There were some revolutionaries, and Pilate slaughtered them and then mingled their blood with the sacrifices. What do you think about that, Jesus? They're trying to prod him. And Jesus says, do you think those guys who were killed by Roman swords, you think they were any worse sinners than anybody else in Galilee? I tell you, no. But unless you change the way you're thinking right now, you're all going to perish. And he says, what about those 18 that were killed the other day when the Tower of Siloam fell on them in Jerusalem? Were they any worse sinners than anybody in Judea? I tell you, no. But unless you change the way you're thinking and change the way you're heading, you're all going to die. Now, we hear this wrong. What, what he's saying is, do you think that what happened to those people in Galilee who were killed by Roman swords and what happened to those people in Judea who were killed by falling stones, do you think what happened to them was anything unique? If, if you keep thinking the way you're thinking, obsessed with, with payback and escalating vengeance, and someday we're going to stick it to the Romans, if you don't change the way you're thinking, you're all going to die by Roman swords and falling stones. And you remember what he said just a few days later when he's carrying his cross through the streets of Jerusalem and these women come and they're weeping for him and he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and weep for your children. Because I'm telling you, within a generation, they're going to put a siege around you. They're going to put ramparts all around you. And he says, if this is what they're willing to do when the tree is green... What do you think they're going to do when the tree is dry? And what he's saying is, I've never advocated for revolution against Rome. And look what they're doing. They're crucifying me. If they're willing to do this to me, what do you think they're going to do to your sons who do advocate for revolution against Rome? And one generation later, 40 years later, the Roman historian Josephus, who was not a Christian, he records for us, in the year 66 AD, the Romans surround the city of Jerusalem. Right off the bat, take 20,000 young Jewish men and crucify them. Jesus says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Because I can see where this thing is heading. If you, don't, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And within four years, Jerusalem falls. And, and Josephus says, 600,000 people were killed by Roman swords and falling catapult stones. Why? Because they didn't recognize the things that made for peace. Jesus did not come to perpetuate the system of revenge and bloody paybacks. He came to end that cycle by absorbing the blow and responding with forgiveness, showing us the way forward. 
Jesus lived his own sermon here. When Jesus goes to the cross, it's not eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What's happening on the cross is the world's hostility and hatred and violence and vengeance and evil and sin are being hurled into the body of Jesus and he's absorbing it into his own flesh and he recycles it and what comes back is not escalating vengeance. What comes back is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So that hatred and vengeance and violence and evil and sin and payback found a place to die in the body of Jesus. And they lay away his dead body in the grave. And the world can look at that and say, you see, that's what happens to weak people who refuse to strike back. But then on the third day, the father raises his son from the dead and ascends him to his right hand and proclaims that Jesus is Lord of all. And you and I are called to believe him and to follow him. And not just to simply say, I like how Jesus did that on the cross. I'm so glad Jesus died for me, and I'm really glad I never have to do anything resembling that. Well, do you? What does he say? If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross. See, this is not easy. Being a follower of Jesus is not easy. It's, it's very difficult. It's going to be very difficult. And it's not the way of conventional common sense. The wisdom of God confounds the wisdom of the world. It looks like foolishness to the world. This is the narrow way and few are willing to find it. But it's the way that leads to life as God intends and it's the way that leads to true peace and healing in the world. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.